People say less is more. At Red Barn, we think less is better. It's what you won't find that sets our natural premium pet food apart. No byproducts, no corn or soy, no fillers. Just the natural ingredients your pets need to live the healthy life they deserve. Look at the label. We want you to. Red Barn Naturals Pet Food. Simply the best. Find it in your local pet specialty store. Try our chicken rolled food as a meal or shred it as a topper. Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The Unstoppable Ones. You did say unstoppable, right? You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? Good evening. I am the Unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and tonight we are going on another Mission Unstoppable, this time into a living nightmare. We're on a sunny afternoon, an unseen intruder descends upon an idyllic neighborhood and irrevocably shatters the family's innocence. He tore them apart by violence, forever taking away any consideration that the world is a nice place to live. My guest this evening is a woman who I believe deserves your utmost respect and admiration. She's a testament to the adage that God doesn't give us more than we can handle, even when we think we can't take any more. And she was asked to give a lot. Deborah Puglisi was a normal mother, wife, hospice nurse when trouble came to her door. When it was over, she was still a mother and a hospice nurse, but her husband was gone forever. Stay tuned, stay close to meet this unstoppable woman. This is the unstoppable Frankie Picasso. You are listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. The time in Toronto is 8 p.m., 7 in Chicago, and 5 in Los Angeles. I want to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over the network, and I especially want to thank you, you know who you are, for tuning in to me each and every week. The phone lines are now open at 646-595-3741. Feel free to call in. The chat room is open as well. Hello to everybody in there. Feel free to join in the dialogue anytime. There's a new system here at Blog Talk Radio. If you want to hang on and listen to the show, you can call in. I think you need to hit one, though, if you want to participate in the show. So let's, let's see that, and that uh, we might be able to bring you up there. It's all brand new. We're learning as we go. <laughs> Deborah Puglisi-Sharp is the author of Shattered, Reclaiming a Life Torn Apart by Violence, on April 20th, 1998. Everything about her life changed when a factory worker high on crack cocaine came into her neighborhood looking for a woman, any woman, and he spotted her. Deborah was attacked repeatedly, raped, sodomized, abducted, and taken from her family home. Days from a hard blow to her head, she was gagged, blindfolded, and hogtied, and without much of a fight was wrapped up and thrown into her abductor's car and driven away. And during her five days of confinement in his home, Deborah learned on the evening news that her abductor had murdered her husband. And if that wasn't enough to add insult to injury, she also heard on the news that the police were speculating that somehow she might have even orchestrated the entire event. Tonight is her story. Good evening, Deborah. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable. Thank you. It's it is so to great you. to have you. Oh, yeah. I'm just so thrilled. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the invitation. You know, I I want to say how proud I am of you for working so hard and making it through to the other side. You really are a walking testament to the victims of violence everywhere, uh, that there is life after hell and it does go on. Thank and you. I want to say that your book, Shattered, is a real masterpiece in subtlety. Your story is neither sensationalized nor is it short on emotion or truth. We empathize with you every step of the way. And it's not easy to read. It's not easy to fill ourselves up with so much ugliness, but it's necessary for us to hear you and to know you and, and know that it could happen to any of us. I want to say, Deborah, that, that it made me angry and frustrated, <laughs> as it did you, I'm sure. I was angry with the police. I was angry with your 911 call. I was angry with the legal system that allowed you to feel like you had done something wrong. So I'm going to ask you something. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something. Aside from the rubberneckers who we know, you know, will always be in attendance to the lady by gory details, why do you offer your most personal intimate details on a platter for everyone? What is it that you want us to hear, to know, and to get from your story? 
Well, I, I think it's a learning tool, and in fact, the book has been used for um, a course in victimology for law enforcement. And I think that um, a lot of the emotions I expressed in the book are true emotions that other victims of crime have experienced and have been able to relate to. Uh, I'm really tired of uh, crime in the world. I think that we need to um, stop the silence, and so I decided to share everything, all of my emotions, in Shattered. And it has really um, done very well, and I've gotten a lot of um, positive reactions from the book. But like you say, it is not an easy read. No, it's not an easy read, especially, I don't know if it's harder for a woman or a man to read that, you know, as a protector or as, as, a, as a woman. I'm just going to check this, this caller here and see if they want to just stay on hold and listen or if they want to come on okay. air. Hello there, 862, you're on, on the air. Did you want to be on air or did you want to just hang on and listen? 862, hello? Yes, hello. Hi. Hello. Can you hear us? Hello. Hello. Yes, this is Charity. I'm deaf. I'm talking through an interpreter. Okay, Charity. Um, we'll be patient, and hopefully you'll be patient with us. Did you have something that you wanted to say, or did you want to listen in? Well, I think this is a wonderful show, and this is um, very interesting. I'm, you know, wanting to learn more about it, and um, I noticed there's lots of um, crime in the world now, and um women being victims from men. I don't know why men um, want to do that kind of thing. I really don't understand it. Well, maybe we'll get some insight tonight from, from Deborah. It sounds like she knows quite a lot. Did you? I'm going to put you back on on, um, on hold, okay? And you just listen in if you want. I'll, I'll try to get back to you in a bit. Thanks for calling, Charity. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, the, the lines are, are lighting up here, Deborah. Let's just 509, did you want to be on hold and listen, or did you want to have something to say? Area code 509, you're on air. Maybe they just wanted to hang in there and, and listen for a little bit. Okay, Debbie. <laughs> wow, here we go. You, you took a simple, I'm, I'm really kind of curious, what color were the roses that you were planting that day? Uh, actually, four different colors. There were four different uh, rose bushes that were given to me by my neighbor and very dear friend. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned the colors in the book, but it's been a while, so I do not really remember. Yeah. But I love all roses. Yeah, because you took that sim you took the rose as a symbol, and, and, and while I know your neighbor felt kind of guilty for giving you that bush, because I think he felt that if he hadn't, you wouldn't be outside that day um, gardening. <laughs> well, he struggled with that, and I wanted to make it clear up front that uh, the responsibility was certainly, you know, with my offender and the rose bushes had nothing to do with it. And I wanted, I, I do use the rose as a symbol because I, I continue to love roses and they had nothing to do with what happened to me. That's awesome. Your your husband, Anthony, uh, yes. also called Nino. Um, yes. You How old were you when you met him? I was uh, just shy of 20, and we married when we were 21. Wow. And, and when he was murdered, you guys were, what, about two weeks shy of your 25th wedding anniversary? Um, it was actually uh, less than one month. The event was on April 20th, and the anniversary would have been May 19th, so um, about one month. Yeah. So it was, wow. It was uh, uh, very upsetting, of course, uh, of course. to say the least. But um, were you surprised we, by the reaction of his family? I mean, his his family after the event really weren't weren't in your lives anymore, and and I, I can imagine how how frustrating and difficult that might have been for you. I mean, you're in somebody's family for twenty twenty five years, yeah, and then they go uh, away. Well, I I think the explanation to that, and as you said, I am a hospice nurse, and people grieve differently. So I had to really think about. Um, the way the family reacted to other stressors in their lives. And quite honestly, they didn't deal well. And so it just explains their behavior. And they were grieving. And we have made amends. Um, we just oh, took you a have? step back. Yes, we took a step back. And uh, upon the advice of my counselor, I had to let all negative energy go. And that was 
what I did. And I just kind of, you know, spoke to my children and said, look, we need to let the Puglisi's have their grief. And mm-hmm. um, so they did, and they, they were able to come back to us. But, it, you know, it, that's one thing about death. It brings forth so many emotions. And because I work in the field of death and dying, I was able to come to the understanding that they were hurting and just had to step aside. You mentioned you're a hospice nurse, and, and you did spend a lot of time with people who were dying. How, long, how many years had you done that before the event? Before the event, uh, six years. And then after the event, I went back to hospice nursing. And I worked a total of 10 years, took another break, uh, went back. Uh, I've been now 12 years as a hospice nurse, and at the present time, I work in an inpatient hospice center. So I have returned to hospice nursing. So what is it about that, Debbie, that, that brings you back to it? What is it that you love about it? Well, I'm a nurse, and, of course, in this economy, even though I work, you know, traveling and speaking to crime victims and law enforcement, I certainly need to fall back on my nursing, and my passion is hospice work. I think it's it's rewarding. Um, I am very satisfied working in the field of hospice, and I think also by being a hospice nurse, it helps me to survive because I have dealt with the gamut of emotions. And I was Mm -hmm. able to, um, when my offender became very angry, I was able to deal with his anger because I had dealt with it with families who were losing a loved one. I was going to ask you exactly, that was my next question, if if those skills came in. And and I I also think they may have come in when you were able to distance yourself from emotion. Yes. That was going on. And I call that dissociation. I was actually Mm -hmm. able to free myself of all emotion, and I had a job to do, and that was survive. And Mm -hmm. so what I needed to do was to befriend my offender. I actually gained his trust, and I wouldn't, for the longest time, I wouldn't allow myself to think about, um, you know, just what was going on. I mean, mm-hmm. if I were to to just dwell on the fact that my two beautiful twins were out there planning their father's funeral, not knowing where their, where their mother was, it would have just destroyed me. And so I was able to kind of let it go, and, and I was working that week. I worked on getting my offender to like me, which he did, and I made the decision that I was going to befriend him, and I had a plan, so on the final day... I was able to escape. Debbie, you you went through this horrific ordeal. The this crazy guy. I mean, I'm going to call him crazy, even though we know he wasn't. But he was, you know, drug addicted. He he took you from your home. And what was what was the terror like? Like when you first, yeah. You know, I mean, he hit you, and so you were kind of dulled, I, I would think. Yeah. But when you realized what what had happened, you know. How, how did you get what, how did you get through those first hours, let's say? Uh, the, the first 24 to 48 hours were the most horrific. I believe my body was in a state of shock. And the whole time, of course, I was bound and gagged. And mm-hmm. I was horrified. And I was mm-hmm. convinced the first couple of days that I was going to die. I didn't go into survival mode until about the third day. So I actually had been preparing and talking to God and talking, you know, to Nino and and my deceased mother, trying to come to grips with the fact that, Debbie, you're just not going to make it. And Mm -hmm. especially learning, because I didn't learn about Nino's death until the second day. As soon as I learned that this man had committed murder, I I didn't have a lot of hope. But it wasn't until the third day when he said, I think I might let you go, and that's when I decided, okay, you know, I think I can work with this person. I think mm-hmm. I can get him to like me. And so that's when my whole mood changed. Were you afraid to hope? I was, and I didn't allow myself. I, I think maybe in the back of my mind there was, there was a glimmer of hope, but I really did, I couldn't dwell on it because it was something at the time I didn't think that I could achieve. And so I wanted to keep myself in that mindset that, okay, Debbie, you've got, you've got to work on this guy and you've really got to, I 
you know, made a mental map of my of his home in my mind, and I just did things. And I I, told, I called him sir. I wanted him to think that I liked him. Mm-hmm. And I told him I forgave him for killing my husband. I told him I said you really I really don't believe you want to kill me. And I just said things that I think he wanted to hear. It must have been so bizarre. I mean, you must have thought, geez, I mean, there's nothing more bizarre than what happened to you. And then to have him, you know, sit with you and watch television with you and feed you, yeah. it must, that he must have been so surreal. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it must have been so surreal. It was, and it was something, you know, when the defense attorney later on in the trial would make comments as to, oh, well, you know, he treated you well, he he, yeah. bathed, he fed you, it just, it just made my stomach turn because he was trying to make him into a normal person, which he was not. I mean, he, he was right. a criminal. He, he admitted to me that he was a criminal, and he felt entitlement. He, he just felt that he could have any woman he wanted, an evil person. Yeah, by force he could have them. Yeah. You, you, um, it's 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 disturbing. I'm sorry, it, it, it's disturbing. You you, your hands became swollen. You had you were tied up. You were hog tied, which is even yeah. worse. Yeah. Um, had to be just so so. I mean, you had to be so sore and just in in having to stay in you know in in position for so long. Where did you go? Uh, where did I go as far as my pain in your mind? Yeah, where did my you go? Mind? Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't think about the pain. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. it got to the point where my hands actually were so swollen um, from you know just I had a, a wound infection and my everything was swelling and I didn't actually feel the pain until later on. But I wouldn't. I, I never dwelled on that. When I think, and it's hard to explain, but when you're in a situation when you're fighting for your life. You know, there are things that normally a person would, um, you know, suffer from where I did not. I, I didn't even think about myself. All, I could, I, my, all of my attention was focused on Michael and Melissa and getting back mm-hmm. to them. That was my focus. He, um, he, he went to work. He left you there. He left the TV on and, 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 and left you there all day. Did, he left me many what, times. Yes. And and the third day was that was that the that wasn't the was that the first time you tried to to release the bonds or had you been trying the whole time to do that? Well, the the, the first time that I tried to release the bonds was when he placed me in the car, and that's mm-hmm. when he took me to his home and then he punished me, and that's when he sodomized me, raped me, and then he um, did the ropes much tighter this time, and that was day one. Now day two. I was. I still remained bound and gagged, and he actually went to work um, just one half of a shift. He didn't work the whole evening. But the morning of the third day when he came from work is when he said, I'm thinking about letting you go. So the first time he actually removed the ropes was Wednesday morning, which would have been – I was taken to his home on Monday night. So Wednesday morning – is when he removed the ropes, and that's when he actually turned the light on, took my ropes, and, and you know, I, he had a wash rag in my, in my mouth and uh, blindfold. He took everything off, and he just kind of looked at me and said, I'm thinking about letting you go. And I saw And then you said, person. well, you know, <laughs> and he goes, but you can recognize me now. And you're like, well, why did you take it off? <laughs> well, but, but now another thing that I did with him, when he attacked me, I had glasses on. I was very nearsighted. And when the glasses came off, I really had very limited vision. So what I kind of, the point that I drove home to him was, you know what, I'm, I'm having trouble seeing your face. I really don't, and I would not look at him. And I said, I don't want to look at you because I don't want to be able to, you know, describe you to the police. He was worried mm-hmm. about me describing his home, and I reminded him that he took me there in the trunk of his car, that I couldn't describe the outside of his home. And, again, that I had trouble, you know, being able to describe him. And, you know, he he listened to me, but the bottom line was he valued his life more than mine, and he was not going to let me go. And I kind of knew that. Sorry, (laughs) sorry. I was was just going to say that anybody listening to you right now, (laughs) previous to this, 
you had been you had been treated like um a little girl you don't really know how to you know do things what we'll do everything for you uh you know i don't think you should go you could really be a nurse because you couldn't handle it you can't really handle you know life and and doing uh you know i don't know insurance forms and all these other things and yet you took control of this situation better than than you know most people would would even have hopes and dreams to do yeah where did this where did that 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 um, where did it come from? Where did you come from? Well, not yeah. where did it come from in you, but where did it come from that that self-image of, you know, their self-image of you come from? Uh, I think it was more of a physical strength type of, you know, you know, I don't I was never really um I didn't have a lot of self-esteem. And once I was placed in this position of having to fight for my life, that's when I used my intelligence and mm-hmm. it, you know physical strength was not even in the ball game at this time he was much stronger than i and so mm-hmm. having been told i was not a strong person i'm not sure if it reflected on the fact that you know i can survive something like this so what this event did for me was to prove that i had a lot of courage and power within me i, I do believe that that every human has that within them but mm-hmm. you have to you have to tap on it and it was something that Thank God I was able to, um, like I said, dissociate, not worry about the pain in my wrist and and everything that he was doing to me, but focus on trying to get a plan to get the heck out. And a good job you did. Let's let's take this caller. Let's see who they are. Area code 937, you're on air. Hello? Hi there. You're on air. Did you have a, a question or comment for Debbie? Maybe there. If you're listening to the, if you if if you call, you need to call on your phone, I think, because there's a delay. Okay, I'm gonna hang. Oh, they just hung up. Okay, let's try 509 again. Okay. Let's see here. Area 509, you're still on hold. Did you want to have anything to say to Debbie? Hello. Well, I guess they're gonna stick on stick there too. Okay. <laughs> you're back. They're, well, they're gonna go back on mute. They don't wanna. Some people call in just because they can hear the show and, and they don't uh-huh. necessarily want to talk, so that's okay. The um, the fifth day, was it the fifth day that you were able to, to remove the bonds? Yes, on Friday, yes. On the Friday, and that that's the, the day of the 911 call. Can, can I play that call, Debbie? Yes, you may. Okay. I'm just going to put that up here. Police are an ambulance. Please help me. Deputy Puglisi, please help me. What do you need? I was kidnapped. It's Debbie Puglisi. Where are you? I don't know the address. I'm in his home, and he went to work. You're in the home? Can you trace the call? Okay, let me let me get this straight. You are in the home where he put you at? Ma'am? What? You are in the home where he put you at? Yes. Is that where you're calling from? Yes. Please get me before he comes back. Okay. Please. What's your name? Debbie. Uglisi. P-U-T-L-I-S-I. Please. Okay, don't hang up, okay? Please. Don't, don't hang Help up. Me. Don't hang up, ma'am. Oh. Don't hang up. Please. You there? Yes. Okay, stay on the line. Please. Stay on the line, please. Where is this guy now? Um, 
somebody look out. I, I don't have my glasses. I can't see any. I've got handcuffs on my arms and my feet. Oh, God. Oh, God. Stay in the phone until the officer gets there. Hey, John. Do you know what, the, what phone are you on now? Oh, I'm on a... I want a contact phone. Is there a phone number on it? Um, let me see. It's dark in here. Hold on. Um, hold on. I'm going to see if I can find a light, but okay. I, my hands are tied behind my back. Hold on. Oh. Who's going for this all over? Oh, God. Is that the phone number? Oh, God. Let me see if I can. Oh, God. Is that the phone in the alley? He's going to kill me. Okay, Miss Diane, you say kidnapped. Where is he now? Please come. Okay, they're on the way, but where is he now? Please. Hello? Are you there? Yes, where is the man now? He's at work, I think. But he might come back. So you're there you're there alone now? Yeah, but he might get here before you. They're on the way, man. Just stay in the phone with me until they get there. Oh, how long? How long have you been here? Do you know? Since Monday night. He killed my husband. Do you know who this guy is? Help me. Do you know who this guy is? No, I don't know you. Help me, please. Please help me. Okay, they're on the way, man. Just stay calm until the officer gets there. How long will it take them? They're on the, just a few minutes, ma'am. You say you're handcuffed now? I have handcuffs on my hands and on my feet. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, my God. I want my children. Okay, just sit right there and get there. I want my children. my handcuffs to my feet, and I worked, and I worked, and I got the knot undone, and I stood up, and I got to the phone because I knew where he kept it. Okay. And you have no idea who this guy was at all? No. His first name, I think it's Don, but I don't know his last name. Are they almost here? Yeah, they're on the way. They should be there in just a couple minutes. It's so nice to hear somebody's voice. Oh, I didn't even know he was dead until the next day. Did these guys tell you anything at all about why or what's going on? He said he saw me in the yard and he wanted me. He waited in my house for me. And then my husband came in and he shot him. There's a light. I hope that's not him. Okay, there's probably one of the officers. Just... Oh, Jesus. Do you, do you see a car or anything outside? I saw a light, but I, I don't have my glasses, so I'm so blind. I'm scared to open the door. Okay, we should have an officer pulling up outside now, so if you hear something, that'll be one of the officers. You promise? Yes, ma'am. We have Help an officer. Help me! Okay, ma'am, just, just stay calm. Help me! Just stay calm. Okay. He, know, he knows you're there. No! no. Oh. How come you won't break the door down? Can I go up the phone? Okay, ma'am, can you hear him outside? I heard somebody knocked on the door. Can you can you get to the door? Let me see if I can open the door. Are you there? Yes, go ahead. Okay. I have to go up the phone. Hold on. Okay, can you get to the door?
Another ten one inside, Chuck. Debbie. Yes, I'm here. When you hear that, when you heard it for the first time, or actually when it, when you were going through it, how 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 did you feel with that 911 call? Well, of course I've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times, so I'm okay yeah. listening to it. But initially, when I listened to it, what I could gather from, and and the callers can comment on this also. I pretty much kept it, kept it together until they knocked the door down. And mm-hmm. that's part of what I tried to describe to you of how I kind of held everything in. And then towards the end of the call, you can hear me yelling, help me, help me, help me. And that's when the entire week of emotions just flooded out of me. I mean, it was just, that was the culmination of it. It was like, oh, my God, I really have survived. And that was the first time I allowed myself to feel those emotions. And it's evident by the call. Yeah. I was so angry when I heard the call. <laughs> I felt that the 911 operator couldn't have been, you know, well, less. There were, yeah, there were two. There, there were two. Papers. Yeah. Yeah. There was a call. Yeah, there were, there were two. But he never. I mean, he kept saying, "Yo, do you know the guy? Do you know where you are?" No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm I'm handcuffed. My husband was just murdered. And not once did he say, "You know what, Deb? It's going to be okay. They're coming. They're coming for you. Don't worry." You know, he he. To me, he he was he couldn't have been more cold and 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 less involved. Did you, you didn't feel that though? Uh, well, at the time of the call, I did not. I, I really okay. did not. And. I was not really familiar with the 911 system also at the time I was a victim. And I've mm-hmm. done a lot of work with 911 since. In fact, I was on the 911 Enhancement Board here in the state of Delaware. And so I've learned a lot. And I think now since then we have come so far and we're doing a lot of law enforcement trainings and we're bringing a lot of focus back on the victim. And one of the things I do have to say, though, that second dispatcher after speaking with him after the fact he mm-hmm. he like everyone else thought that i was dead the chances of finding someone who has been kidnapped with you know their spouse murdered after five days the chances are so slim you know i'm a living miracle Did he think it was a hoax i i don't know if he felt it was a hoax but i do think that there was um he had he had trouble believing it because even when I um, escaped and went back into the living world, people would come up to me and say, "I just need to touch you because I can't believe that you came out of this alive." So there mm-hmm. was even on the part of you know the first responders, it was disbelief. It was like, "Oh my God!" And they had no clues also. So because they had no clues and they had no idea where I was, this call that came out of the blue had everyone in like, oh, my God, is this really Debbie Puglisi? But it was upsetting for me to have to spell my name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. You were front-page news for days. Now, I, I, the other question I wanted to ask you was, your brother was a policeman. Yes. And I know that, that you know, he – he wanted to find you, and, and, and I think he told your dad that the chances probably weren't so great. Um, but do you think that, I mean, they, were, they, they had been talking about how you might have been involved in this murder, how you might have set things up. I mean, as ridiculous right. as it sounded, you know, sometimes those things happen. But do you think that you were treated after the fact um, maybe as well as you were be, because you had a brother who was a policeman? Did it play in any way, shape, or form? No, the believability. No, I, no. no okay. I, I was treated well because I, I, I'm convinced. First of all, I had no problems with law enforcement. I was treated very well, and my brother, being in law enforcement, was uh, not permitted to have that role. He was a co-victim. Um, everyone in my family were victims, and yeah. so it was very hard for my brother to switch roles. And he had to be in the background as you know the crime scene develops and everything. He was, of course, not permitted 
to have the role of law enforcement. But what he did do for my family was he tried to have some balance. You know, my family, of course, were, oh, Debbie's going to be okay, and they tried to instill hope in my children, which I appreciate. And my brother, being in law enforcement with the training he had, tried to say, look, it's been five days. We really have to bury Nino, and we have to move on. The chances of finding De De Debbie are very slim. And he felt guilty about that. But what I said to my brother was, you know, your training told you that someone who has been kidnapped uh, by a murderer, is mm -hmm. the chances are very, very slim of finding that person. So he was trying to prepare the family. And when I was found, of course, he was ecstatic, but then he dealt with his own issues about, you know, why did I, why was I the one that didn't have, you know, the hope? And it was because of his mm. training. Yeah, and yeah. I, I respect that. And I've learned a lot. Since I've been working with law enforcement, so much, you know, has been explained to me. The fact that I was a suspect, most crimes are committed by people that you know. This was random. And so I know why they had to suspect me. Mm -hmm, uh, you know, mm -hmm. but having to read about it when I was held captive was, of course. Must have been so frustrating. <laughs> I, I, was, I was frustrated. I was angry. I was like, oh, my God, how can they think that I would even do this? But, um, you know, it, it was just one of those things where upon my escape, I was able to talk to people and, and learn that very early on, within two days, they, they knew by finding um, blood samples where I had been injured in the home that I was also a victim. Donald Flagg was the name of your um, abductor, yes. attacker, and he, he bragged to you that he had committed the perfect crime. That is when I had suggested to him, uh, when he told me he was going to feed me, I asked him to bring a newspaper back to the house, and we read in the newspaper that it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, and with him reading that line, you know, of course, there, was, there were no clues, and he said to me, oh, I've just committed the perfect crime, and I just got goosebumps because I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, they don't know where I am, and... Has, what else has this guy done? I'm wondering to myself, mm -hmm. just what else, who else has he kidnapped and, and murdered? But he, he had been in, in, in prison before, and yet there were, there were no fingerprints. Nothing came up for him when they, went, when they did find the fingerprints, didn't they? But he tested well, nothing came up for him? He actually, the only other time that he was in, in jail, and it was not for a long period of time, I think was back in Detroit. And when he came to Delaware, he really did not have a criminal record. Uh, however, he did attack. He raped a woman three days before me, but that was not disclosed until after my escape. Uh, mm -hmm. the, woman he, the woman he raped three days before me had had the rape kit done, and she recognized him in the news, and they were able to prove that he did, in fact, rape her as well. And I'm sure there were other victims out there, but unfortunately, um, because rape is so underreported, and, you know, it, it was just one of those things that the police really tried to tie him to other rapes, but they were unsuccessful. But I know he raped before. Yeah, yeah. And, and after you were taken to the hospital, you, you had to go through uh, the rape kit as well. Yeah. Yes. And, I, you know, when I do go out and try to educate the public, I can't say enough good about the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program. The same nurses who examine the evidence, they, they actually take the rape victim and they do the rape kit, but they are trained and they're so compassionate and then they can, can go on if needed to testify. Like in my case, the same nurse actually testified in court. But it was a very positive experience for me. And this is, you know, when I had been taken to the hospital, the program was only one year old. And okay. mistakes were made. But mm -hmm. we've come a long way, and I'm truly an advocate of the, the program for sexual assault nurse examiners. How did your How did your kids get through this? How, what how, What What did this manifest? How did it manifest themselves? The the trauma was well, them? of course, uh, with all of this, um, they were worried about me, and I, of course, didn't want that to be a factor in their healing process. So I tried very hard to get past my physical and emotional pain. I immediately sought counseling, 
and of course was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. But I was determined to get back to some type of normalcy because I didn't want my children to have to suffer. They were uh, mm -hmm. sophomores in college when this happened. And we did take the summer uh, of 1998 and we stayed you know, with my parents and family in New Jersey. And we started our healing process. And with intense therapy and a lot of support, and I tried to get them to talk about it and deal with it. And the one thing I have to say about grief, though, our grief was postponed because of the criminal trial. And mm -hmm. so I think most of our grief work was done after the trial, which was one year after the event. And after that, there were many emotional issues and, and just... Um, a lot to deal with, but I am very proud of them. I think that um, once they found out that I was going to be okay, then they could take better care of themselves. You're an amazing woman, Debbie. Absolutely oh. incredible. I wanted I wanted to say that yes, you did go through treatment, but part of part of the treatment for anybody who goes through a traumatic event is being able to talk about it. And you had a hard time not talking about it, but getting someone to listen to you, that you wanted to say these things to your family and tell them what happened, but they didn't want to hear it. So if there's anybody listening tonight that, that has gone you know, through violent crime or, or trauma, what would, you, what would you suggest to them? Well, I think, first of all, it's very hard um, with the family situation because, like I described, they were also victims. Mm -hmm. I am, again, an advocate of mental health counseling, and I think that um, my savior was Dr. Constance Dansu, <laughs> excuse me, who initiated my um, what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And I had to see her once a week, and there was a lot of work. I had to um, go over all of the events with her and deal with it. And it was painful. It was very painful. But I think for victims out there, I think, you know, some victims uh, have bad experiences with counseling, and it's okay to find a person. It could be clergy. It could be a good friend. I think the most important thing is to find a good listener, someone who's non-judgmental. Victim blaming is something that I get very angry about. Uh, when mm -hmm. a victim finally discloses and talks about it and is told, well, you shouldn't have worn that, or you know, mm -hmm. if they start the blaming process, that victim is not going to heal. So my, my advice to any victim is to find, first of all, you know, if they can get counseling, that's the best route. Or find someone they trust that they can talk to. And sharing your story can be so freeing. And for me, being able to talk about it and to share and then actually meet other victims and to share our feelings is something that is um, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's like, you know, years ago, we didn't talk about things like that. You don't talk about yeah. sexual assault. But now it's something I think that we need to bring forth and, and deal with the issues. Even people who have been sexually assaulted 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they need mm -hmm. to come forth now because they're still in pain. They are still in pain, and a lot of times the post-traumatic, you know, syndrome manifests itself 25 years after the fact. I, I you know, I hear of, of, you know, guys who were in the Falklands who, you know, today are, are just getting the symptoms of it. You know, they're yeah. just, they're just trying to find, fight their way out of it. You yeah, know, their depression and, I, and everything else. I agree with you, Frankie, and I think it's important for victims out there to know that the pain is it becomes part of that person, and it's a life. Um, it's something that it's part of you, and it's a lifetime event. When you get someone who hasn't been victimized and says to that person, look, you know, this happened to you a couple of years ago. Now get over it, get over it mm -hmm. put it in the past, and move on. That's the worst thing you can say to someone who has had, you know, a sexual assault or any type of victimization. You know, I think that, you know, people have to realize that there are people out there who don't get it and just, you know, go on and find somebody else that's going to listen. Yeah. Yeah, anybody can put it in the back of their head. Anybody can, you know, hide it. But to work through it is something totally different. Right. You do and, have and to I work that, through it. You do. Yeah, you have to heal from that. The trial must have been extremely frustrating. I think um, you believed, I think you believed in capital punishment at the time. Did you? I was on the fence. 
I had yep. a son who okay. was totally against it. My daughter at the time wanted him dead only because she was having nightmares. And I think that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was ready to accept judgment from the jury. However, when the verdict came down and the jury voted 7-5 to five for life, I thought to myself, you know, how could they, after listening to all of this, want this guy, you know, to live? And that's when I decided that if if anyone deserved the death penalty, Donald Flagg did. He mm-hmm. really, you know, it, it was it was not. Uh, and I've accepted the fact that uh, he is going to be in life for the rest of his life. He cannot hurt another woman, and I'm fine with it. But I do have a problem with other victims. Uh, my heart just goes out to them when they have a family member who has been murdered and that person after 10, 20 years comes up for parole and gets out. And gets out, uh, yeah. That's a toughie. And especially if you know, I mean, it, it was there was no dispute that this man did this to you. Right. There was no if, maybe, you know, we're not sure. It was 110% that this was the guy who hurt you and murdered your husband. So, you know, in, in that case, I can totally, you know, get behind you on that. The way to go to the judge, though, I mean, I got to I gotta congratulate the judge, you know, posthumously because he, 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 he put him on the anniversary of, you know, for five days on the anniversary of April 20th, you know, for five days, he, this guy goes into solitary every that was year. was actually for 10 years, and this was the Oh, was it for 10 year. years? It was for 10 oh. years, and this year was his final year in solitary confinement. So My kids said he should have been in a, a, all year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and, and I, yeah. I, I do. I, I really um, was very um, satisfied that the judge did make that uh, ruling, and it set a precedent in Delaware, uh, a legal precedent, and it, it was something he wanted to do for me, and it did mean a lot. It really did. It helped the fact that, you know, this guy has to think about what he did to me for five days. Um, But it's also, it's ended now. So he now just remains in the prison system. But that's okay. Again, he's he's not getting out. He can't hurt anyone. And that's what I at least have, you know, uh, the satisfaction of knowing. When when April comes along, when April 20th comes along, do do your thoughts go to him now? Or is that... Um, every time again, it's it's part of the PTSD. It's um, every mm-hmm. April twentieth. I try to take care of myself. In fact, um, my husband and I now I've remarried, obviously, and and we most of the time are in Aruba. Um, oh, okay. Really, yes, uh, we we get out of the country and we just um, just celebrate life. And it's it, it's just a day that I do reflect upon, not just the day, but the entire week. Um, from April 20th to April 24th, and uh, this year it was especially hard because April 20th was on a Monday, and it was a Monday that I was attacked. So I had a harder time this year, and also I had already returned from Aruba, so I was home, and I I really did have a harder time this year. That's why I, I say, you know, all victims need to know that it's never really over. It does get better. But uh, the pain is always there, and it's how you, you deal with the pain, and that's why I highly suggest uh, the counseling and taking care of yourself. Now, you did mention that, you know, some happy news. You did get remarried, and so life does go on. Now, your your husband, your first husband, Anthony, you know, he, he was a bass player. He, he had a boat that he absolutely loved and adored, and and that was something, you know, special that you that you um, memorized him, commemorized him with, I guess, if you want, right. if you could use that word. But, but your husband, Bill Sharp, he was he was your first love and, and the man that introduced you to your husband, Nino. And I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, I didn't know at the time. It was wasn't until we started dating um, after my husband died that he mentioned the fact that you know we were. Um, at a pub, and he, my Nino had come up to Bill because they were acquaintances, and said, "Hey, Bill, do you know any um, nice women in here? One that I could take home to Mom?" And Bill pointed in my direction, and I didn't find that out until years later. So, so you know, isn't it great what comes around? <laughs> yeah. What goes around goes around, and yeah. and and 
like you said, that Nino found somebody nice for you to look yeah. after you. Yeah. Yeah. How beautiful is that? It is. And we have a good life, and um, Bill, is he loves me unconditionally, and he, he understands why I need to continue to share my story, and I travel across the nation um, to share my story and just to try to inspire other victims of crime uh, to move on with their lives. Now, I know that, that you mentioned in the book that one thing you can't stand is his arm across your chest, but how, how you know, I'm going to ask the question that people are, you know, they want to know. Sexually, was it okay for you to make love to your husband? Is, it, is there a problem, or were you able well, to, that was okay, but... Yeah, that's a great question because most women who have been raped have trust issues and they have problems moving on, especially with relationships. I think it helped that I had known Bill before, that we had dated before, and but still we moved very slowly and, and he would ask permission, oh, can I hold your hand? And, and another thing that Bill did for me that made me love him all the more is that he agreed to go to counseling with me so he could learn uh, about my behaviors and about my fears and and the problems that I had at the time. So I think because he made the effort and he truly mm-hmm. loved me and wanted to do what was best for me, that I really, you know, have still a lot of respect and admiration for the man who who wanted to take care of me. You mentioned that you mentioned that you guys were in a in a car accident not too long ago in Aruba. Yes, last April a year ago. And it actually happened on April 18th, which was two days before the 10-year anniversary of the crime. And we were in a taxi cab um, returning to our hotel, and um, there were two speeding cars, and one of the cars slammed into the side of our van, and we were flipped over twice. Bill was ejected, and when the, the taxi landed on its side, I was trapped inside. And to make a long story short, after... I was pulled out of the van. I went running to Bill on the side of the road, and I thought I had lost my second husband. It was just, I can't. And that's the second time you probably thought you were going to lose him because he also had cancer, that that he was able to to get into remission. Yes, he he was diagnosed with colon cancer um, one our first year that we were married. We were married um, in July of 2000, and and in July of 2001, he was diagnosed with colon cancer and had to go through surgery and chemotherapy. And, um, you know, I, I thank God, but he is now eight years in remission. So, um. Debbie, do you ever go, okay, enough is enough, okay, leave me alone here, please. Well, you know, uh, life is full of bumps in the road, and, and somehow Bill and I both have been able to survive many, and, we just, you know, take it in stride. I mean, we, we also have friends that have had, you know, horrific things happen. And, you know, tragedy is, is something that it's, it's life. And But I think, as I said before, it's how you deal with it. And it's, um, mm-hmm. I try to keep a positive outlook, and it truly has helped me. But I think what helps me the most is being able to share and then go out and, and help other victims um, come to the realization that there is life after trauma. Yeah, I mean you're racking up big points here <laughs> for your next life. It should, it's, you should be on a beach in Aruba for the whole of it. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, you deserve we, it. We we, we love uh, getting away and and just um, being together. And and even though a lot of people couldn't believe that we went back this year, but you know accidents happen everywhere. And Absolutely. And we did return and we had a wonderful time. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. So, do, do you still live in Delaware? Is that your home, or yes? I yeah, in the in state. Delaware. Yeah, in a different yeah. county, though. I'm actually at the beach. Oh, nice. That's, that's a nice life. Yeah, at the beach. Yeah. And and do you do you take precautions today when you know you go out? Do you garden? If you go and garden, and do you lock your door? I mean, like somebody said well, to you something ridiculous. <laughs> I think in the book, you should have locked your front door. Like, who does that? When right. they go out in the to, middle you know. of the afternoon, I had a security system, but who puts their security system on at you know two mm-hmm. in the afternoon? But to answer your question, yes, I lock my doors. Uh, I don't live in fear, but I am more aware of my surroundings. I, you know, if yeah. someone were to come to the door, and if I didn't know them, I don't answer the door. Um, so I just, you know, I, I use good common sense, but I, mm-hmm. I refuse to let fear destroy me. But as far as gardening. We actually live in an over-55 development, and we have our grass cut, and no, I don't garden. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. 
<laughs> That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Wow. It's, you know, <laughs> and that's great. And I, I was so pleased to see that you took the roses to court. And, and your, I think your lawyer was a little ticked at you, you know, thought you're yes. grandstanding. But yeah. it was, you know, a message. Like, you know what? Screw you. You well, didn't get me. Message, the message was actually for my friend. Um, when I brought the rose in, I wanted him, because he was still struggling during the testimony yeah. and everything, and I wanted him to know, you know, I brought the rose in, and I just wanted to say, hey, Jean, you know what, it's okay, it's okay. But, yes, the prosecutor had a really hard time with it, and then they had a hard time when during the penalty phase when I wore my red suit. <laughs> yeah. I call it, you know, I've always <laughs> told, told women, in my book I think I even wrote, you know, if you want to feel powerful, wear a red suit. It's like it really does help you feel really good about yourself well, and very you know, powerful. Well, and that goes back to how victims feel in the courtroom. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that victims really are re-victimized when they go into the courtroom. You know, you're told how to, how to dress. You're told how to respond. The first time I showed emotion in the courtroom, I was actually told to leave and I might not get back in. Um, so just what are you supposed to do? One of the jurors had said to me, oh, you know, uh, Debbie didn't show enough emotion, you know, because I didn't mm-hmm. cry. And the reason I didn't cry was because of all the counseling that I had. Mm-hmm. So in, in mm-hmm. some respects, I feel that maybe I was too strong. Um, so jurors, unfortunately, have this idea of how a victim is supposed to act in court. Yeah. Oh. You, took, you took all this all this counseling so that you could go in strong and say his name and look at him and not, right. not you know, faint at the sight of him. And then they penalize you for, for not withering in front exactly. of them. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a re-victimization. It is. It is. But that's yeah. why I think Shattered, I was able to write about all of these feelings. And it's good for other people to read and just identify with those same feelings and think, you know what, hey, you know, this, this is how I felt. And um, so, But we, you know, we just really need to, to bring it to the surface, get all these people to come out and just deal with these emotions and, and, and start their healing process. And it's unfortunate, too, about, you know, the performance of the attorneys and that one was more theatrical than the other. And so, you know, he was the defense counsel for, for Donald and, and that, that he could make them feel something. And you're just, like, biting your tongue going, oh, my God, look, I could kill this guy. I could kill this guy. And yeah. Literally, <laughs> I felt like that. I know that. You know, like, you yeah. just wanted to slap him and take a gun yeah, or it, something. It was and, difficult. And, it was difficult. And it was hard for me uh, at the time to understand why a person would want to defend you know, this scum of the earth, and but, you know, yeah. I've learned that this is what defense attorneys do, but still, you know, I have seen the defense attorney um, in public, and he just turns his head. He does not talk to me. Yeah, he's probably really embarrassed. <laughs> I don't know, no, but I really, I'm at, I'm at more peace than he is, I guess. I don't know, because I just, uh, um, I've moved on, and, you know, that the, the trial is in my past, and we at least have Donald Flagg behind bars. And uh, so he, he's the one now that uh, will not uh, ever set forth on the on That's he, he's, right. He's in a cell. Yay. He's in a cell. And uh, now I have the control. He has none. That's it. Now, I said that, that you know, this book was incredible. And Marjorie Preston, you know, helped. helped how, uh, what, what was her input in this book? Marjorie Preston is a great journalist. And we, she's also a rape survivor. And I wanted okay. Marjorie to help me tell my story because we did a lot of healing together. We did a lot of writing together. But her style, I have to credit her with the style, and uh, she did a wonderful job um, helping me tell my story. It is a fantastic job. So kudos, kudos to her. So is there any more books in your future? Uh, not at this time. Everyone asks me that. But right now I think that I'm enjoying my public speaking and going out and, and talking to the nation uh, just about uh, the ordeal and how I've been able to um, become a whole person again. So, you know, will there be another book? Possibly, but at this point, I don't think Shattered has gotten the attention that it really needs uh, to get. And uh, I'm, I'm still working on that. I really am. I, I, I think that more uh, people, not just women, but I've had men read it as well, uh, because men are mm-hmm. victims, but uh, mm-hmm. naturally, of course, with sexual assault, um, I, I mostly meet women. But I have had many, many men come up to me and disclose about um, being sexually molested. Wow. You are doing an amazing service for everybody. And, again, just what 
an amazing and incredible woman you are to have survived and thrived, really, and thrived and, and to, to have a life and love and, and everything else that you do. So I want to, I will do everything I can to get, uh, you know, to get, to get word of your book out there. Whatever I can Thank do, you. I'm happy to help. And, and I'm hoping that all the listeners here will also do that as well. And your book is available on Amazon.com, and it's called Shattered, Reclaiming a Life Torn Apart by Violence. And also your website is PugliseSharp.com, so www.PugliseSharp.com. You can go to her website, Debbie's website, and, and find out more information about her trial and see some of uh, her family pictures, which is really kind of nice to be able to, to see all of all. Of, your daughter is absolutely stunning, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. And we have she has a beautiful daughter. I'm a grandmother, and your and grandmother now. Has, yes, and and uh, my husband Bill has a, a beautiful daughter, Dorian, and she's married to a wonderful man. And we have two beautiful grandchildren that were here for five days. So we have three grandchildren. We're very proud of them. Yeah, and it, you know, here's another testament that life goes on. So congratulations again, Debbie. Well, thank and thank you. you to everybody who joined us in the chat room this evening, and, and we'll be listening to the archive version later on. Uh, I do so appreciate you, and, and please look up Debbie's book, Shattered. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and pass it on to everybody that you know and love. Thank you again, Debbie. It's been a oh, real pleasure welcome. having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night.